Would you remain standing? Let's confess our faith together in the words of the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to Hades. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. You may be seated. Well, today's message is the twelfth and final message in this series through the Apostles' Creed. Um, If you uh, missed any of these and would like to uh, take them in, they're available online at mylpcholy.com. You can view all of them and any of our messages. Um, All of them are archived there. So we've arrived here at the final two lines. I believe in the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. Amen. The creed concludes not with a whimper, but with a bang. It declares the hope that is ours in Jesus Christ, the eternal destiny for which each believer in Jesus Christ eagerly awaits. In his letter to the church in Ephesus, the Apostle Paul said, Remember that you were separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God, in the world. One of the essential characteristics that distinguishes the believer in Jesus Christ from everyone else is a confident hope rooted in the promise of God and the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, the hope that we too will be raised from the dead and take hold of life everlasting. To Titus, Paul described the full sweep of the redemptive work of God in the life of every believer who believes in Jesus In just three verses, or four rather, he saved us, not because of the righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He washed away our sins, giving us a new birth and new life through the Holy Spirit. He generously poured out the Spirit upon us through Jesus Christ our Savior. Because of his grace, he made us right in his sight and gave us notice, gave us confidence that we will inherit eternal life. That hope changes not only the way that we think about and anticipate our own deaths, but also the deaths of other believers whom we know and love. On the 4th of November of last year, a blog post appeared in my inbox from Tim Callies, who is pastor of Grace Fellowship Church in Toronto, and it was titled, My Son My dear son has gone to be with the Lord. And here's how it read. In all the years I've been writing, I've never had to type words more difficult, more devastating than these. Yesterday the Lord called my son to himself. My dear son, my sweet son, my kind son, my godly son, 
my only son. Nick was playing a game with his sister and his fiancée and many other students when he suddenly collapsed, never regaining consciousness. Students, paramedics, and doctors battled valiantly but could not save him. He's with the Lord he loved, the Lord he longed to serve. We have no answers to the what or why questions. Yesterday, Aileen and I cried and cried until we could cry no more, until there were no tears left to cry. And then later in the evening, we looked each other in the eye and said, we can do this. We don't want to do this, but we can do this. This sorrow, this grief, this devastation, because we know we don't have to do it in our own strength. We can do it like Christians, like a son and daughter of the Father who knows what it is to lose a son. We traveled through the night to get to Louisville so we could be together as a family, and we ask that you remember us in your prayers as we mourn our loss together. We know there will be grueling days and sleepless nights ahead. But for now, even though our minds are bewildered and our hearts are broken, our hope is fixed and our faith is holding. Our son is home. You see, this hope that is ours in Christ is real. It matters. And it sustains us through the most difficult of experiences this side of heaven. In times of searing loss, we grieve, and we should. We should, for a whole host of reasons. Yet, we grieve in a manner qualitatively different from the manner in which those grieve who are without Christ. Paul wrote to the believers in Thessalonica, We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that is, those who have died, that you may not grieve as others do, who have no hope. The old classic words of committal spoken by countless pastors at countless gravesides speak to us of that sure and certain hope. For as much as it has pleased Almighty God to take unto himself the soul of our brother here departed, we therefore commit his body to the ground, earth to earth, ashes to ashes, dust to dust, in sure and certain hope, in sure and certain hope, in sure and certain hope of the resurrection to eternal life through our Lord Jesus Christ. This morning I want to turn your attention to Paul's discussion of the resurrection of the body. If you have your Bible, I want to encourage you to uh, open it to 1 Corinthians 15, uh, beginning with verse 35. Have it open as we move along because we're going to mostly hang out in that passage with only a few side excursions into some other passages. So listen and follow along as I read this passage. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? You foolish person, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. For not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. 
these, there are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies. But the glory of the heavenly is of one kind and the glory of the earthly is of another. There is one glory of the sun and another glory of the moon and another glory of the stars, for star differs from star in glory. And so it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural, and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Well, a number of thoughts from this passage. First of all, the Lord Jesus and the New Testament writers are unanimous and unequivocal in the belief that God will certainly resurrect the bodies of believers. Something that's often hard to wrap our minds around, and yet that is the unanimous, unequivocal statement of the New Testament writers. In 1 Corinthians 15, after exploring in verses 12 to 19 those sorry implications for us if, in fact, Christ had not been raised from the dead, which we explored earlier in this series, he goes on in verses 20 to 26 to make the point that because Christ himself has been raised from the dead, all who are in Christ shall certainly also be made alive at his coming. Reading at verse 20, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. And then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, 
after destroying every rule and every authority and power, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Now notice Paul's repetition of that word, first fruits. The word points to the very beginning of the harvest and the promise of more to come. Secondly, notice with me that the body that is sown is not the body that is to be. The body that is sown is not the body that is to be. Verse 35, but someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? You foolish person, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain, But God gives it a body as he has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. Now, there are at least four points here that call for our consideration, and I've just bulleted them for you on your sermon notes form. First, Paul offers a metaphor. He says that the body is like a seed, like a seed. A funny thing about seeds, I've sown a lot of them this spring, I'll sow a lot more before the growing season is over. Have you ever looked at a seed, maybe of a flower or a vegetable, and just wondered to yourself how something that's so ugly in some cases, um, so shriveled looking and seemingly dead, can bring forth life? Or have you ever wondered how something so tiny can sprout up and become something so exponentially larger, far out of proportion to what went into the ground. How many of you have been to the California Redwoods? Any of you? Okay. My wife grew up right next door to the California Redwoods. And when I say right next door, I mean right next door. And she played with her friends among those enormous trees. But do you know that the seed of a a giant sequoia is flat, and it's only about the size of a pinhead. That's the, that's the seed. And it's encased in a, um, a little thing that's only a quarter to about three-eighths of an inch long by about a quarter inch wide. And yet from that tiny pinhead seed, can come a giant tree that can grow up to 250 feet in height or more, 100 feet or more in circumference, and weigh millions of pounds. I once heard someone say, if you're feeling down on yourself, remember that the mighty oak tree was once just a nut like you. God, Paul said, gives to each kind of seed its own body. And in the same way, he's going to give to you and to me the the, the resurrection bodies that he has uniquely and sovereignly prepared for us when we die and we enter into his presence. While I was preparing for this message, I came across a little poem that's supposedly inscribed on a tombstone somewhere in New England. This particular tombstone marks the grave of a man with the unique name of Solomon Pease, P-E-A-S, Solomon Pease. And it reads like this, Beneath this sod and beneath these trees lies the body of Solomon Pease. But it ain't Pease, it's just the pod. 
peace shelled out and went to God. <laughs> Great. The second point has to do with the words perishable and imperishable. Perishable and imperishable. Go with me to verses 42 to 44. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there's a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Uh, It's true, isn't it, that as we age, our bodies are not quite what they once were. Uh, The words dishonor and weakness apply more and more. Uh, If you don't believe me, take off your shirt and look in the mirror. I heard the story, (laughs) sorry, Just look in your own mirror, not in somebody else's. I heard the story of a little girl, six or seven years old, who was sitting on her grandmother's lap. She scanned the wrinkles in her grandmother's face, spots on her hands, the veins that were showing through her skin. And then looking at her own hands and her own arms and legs, she asked her grandmother, Grandma, did God make you? And her grandmother replied, well, yes, sweetheart, God made me. And then the little girl inquired, Grandma, did God make me? To which, of course, came the answer, yes, God made you too. The little girl was quiet for a moment and then came back very seriously. Grandma, I think God's doing better work these days, don't you? (laughs) As we approach our later years, our bodies begin to fail us in a variety of ways. A dear friend of ours had a coffee mug that featured this poem. First you crawl and then you walk. Eventually you learn to talk. Before you know it, you start to stoop. Getting old is chicken poop. But notice... Paul says that when believers die and we receive the resurrection body God promises to give us, we make a great exchange. We exchange the perishable for the imperishable. We exchange dishonor for glory. We exchange weakness for power. And we exchange a natural body for a spiritual body. So notice with me, if you will, also the theme of continuity and discontinuity. And those words aren't in the text, of course, but the ideas are. What do I mean by that? What I mean by continuity is that the person you will be in heaven is the real you. Your family members and loved ones will be themselves. We will know and recognize each other. We'll we'll share memories together. C.S. Lewis made the point that as we mature in Christ here on earth, we become more and more fully the person God intended for us to be. And when we're in his presence, that process will finally and wonderfully be made complete. What I mean by discontinuity is that in heaven you will be clothed in a new body. 
not like the old one. It will be linked with the old one, yet it's different from it. Just as plants are linked with and yet different from the seeds from which they came. It's mind-blowing to me to think that in that seed the size of a pinhead, all of the DNA for the 250-foot giant sequoia is written. So the two are vitally linked, but they're not at all the same. The late theologian J.I. Packer wrote that the raising of the body means the restoring of the person, not just part of me, but all of me, to active, creative, undying life for God and with God. Fourth, there is in verses 45 to 49, the matter of the image of Adam and the image of Christ. I won't take the time to read it, but it's there on your screen. You might ask, what's all of this about the image of Adam, the man of dust? Go ahead and go to the next slide, please. Thank you. What's this about the image of Adam? the man of dust. I thought we were created in the image of God. Well, precisely speaking, yes, we were. But Adam sinned. And since that time, every one of his descendants is born in his likeness and after his image. Notice Genesis 5.3, when Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness, after his image, and named him Seth. As we've seen, to be born into the human family is to be born into Adam's family. And when we're born again, we're born again into the family of God. It's not the children of Adam who inherit the kingdom, but the children of God who have been born again through personal faith in Jesus Christ and who have therefore been adopted into the family of God. Your resurrection body will be like Christ's resurrection body. In Paul's letter to the Philippian church, chapter 3, verses 20 to 21, we have this promise. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Your resurrection body will be like Christ's resurrection body. Now we have a lowly body. New bodies will not be lowly, but glorious. In 2 Corinthians 5, Paul gives us this further insight, for we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house, not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling, if indeed by putting it on we may not be found naked. 
For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. Notice that the resurrection body is in some sense a physical body. What that will be, we don't know. Second, Paul tells us here that the resurrection body will be a permanent body. Permanent. And he compares our earthly bodies to a tent and our resurrection bodies to a building or to a house. It's an important realization for those who think that camping means Motel 6. Right? Third, the resurrection body will not be a naked body, but a clothed or further clothed body. Our mortality being swallowed up by life. It will be at the moment of his coming that you will be transformed into his likeness. On the day of the Lord, whether alive on the earth or six feet under, all those who are united with Christ by faith will experience a glorious transformation. On the day of the Lord, whether alive or dead, that will be true of each of us. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, Paul wrote, but we shall all be changed. And there's that verse again that should be over every church nursery, right? We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. Behold, I tell you a mystery, we shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. See, the event that Paul's describing here in verses 51 to 53 is what we call the rapture of the church. And Paul also described it in his letter to the Thessalonian believers. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then... We who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. The fundamental transformation that will take place for both the dead and for those living at the time of his coming will be that in that moment, in the twinkling of an eye, Paul said, how long is that measure of time? The twinkling of an eye. We will be made like Jesus. John wrote, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. There is something about that moment 
uh, that moment of seeing him, that moment of recognition that will transform us into his likeness. We might consider the thought that that is only true of believers. For those who have not trusted in Christ, that same encounter will mean death, it will mean condemnation, it will mean eternal separation from God. David the psalmist declared, As for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. When I awake, I shall be satisfied with your likeness. Love that. Finally, your mortal body will put on immortality. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. See, on the other side of the grave, where some of our loved ones have already gone, clothed, immortal, and imperishable, we will ask, why did we fear death so much? Why the dread? And we will realize with finality and fullness that our sin really was dealt with at the cross. That Jesus really was raised from the dead. That death has lost all power over us when we trusted in Jesus. That the scriptures were true. That all of the promises of God are fulfilled. All of them are yes and amen in Christ. The hope of the resurrection gives meaning and purpose to our lives now. See, Paul wants us to know in verse 58 that because Christ was raised from the dead and because we have the confident hope of the resurrection from the dead, we can face all of the fears, all of the challenges of today and tomorrow, and we can live with purpose and meaning and intentionality today. All of the choices you make in obedience to God, all of the sacrificial investments you make in the advancement of the gospel, all of the hard work in ministry to others make sense in light of the resurrection of Jesus and our own resurrection to come. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, be immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. The hope of the resurrection removes the fear of death and judgment. Again, verses 54 to 57. You see them there on your screen. Because Jesus bore our sins in his own body at the cross, because the sacrifice that he made for our sin was once and for all, the price he paid was final and in full. And because he died our death in our place, Death itself has lost its sting. And sin has lost its condemning power. And when we come to understand this and begin to live in that truth, we no longer live in slavery to the fear of death or judgment. Do we deserve death and judgment? Yes, we do. 
But Jesus stood in for us at the cross, taking on himself what we deserved. Finally, we believe in the life everlasting. Believe in the life everlasting. A young father received the news that his grandmother had died. And he was invited to view her body at the local mortuary. He he thought that it might be a good learning experience for his five-year-old son. So he said to him, son, your great-grandmother has died and gone to heaven. I'm going to go see her. Would you like to come? The little boy thought for a moment and said, okay. So they drove to the funeral home. They were led into the viewing room by a somber-looking man in a suit. And there the little boy saw his great-grandmother's body lying in a casket. There were candles lit here and there, flower arrangements, and music softly playing from speakers in the ceiling. And the boy shoved his hands in his pockets and looked around, looked again at her body, glanced around the room, took it all in, then turned to his dad and asked, So, this is heaven? The sad thing to realize that many Christians have been conditioned to think that heaven will be something far less engaging, far less exhilarating, far less fulfilling than what we know and experience in this life. I mean, when you think about it, who gets excited about sitting on a cloud and playing a harp? You even like harp music? Most of the most of the images of heaven in popular culture have little relationship, if any, to what the Bible says our experience will be when we get there. And so very few of us actually long for heaven. Paul wrote to the Romans that we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. But do we? Do we groan? Really? We might stop and pause to consider whether there is a cause for concern if whatever groaning we are doing is only motivated by longings for more of what this world has to offer. We need to come to terms with the truth that heaven, the the very presence of God, is not a place of less, but it is a place of infinitely more. Songwriter Lanny Wolf penned these words some years ago, He's more wonderful than my mind can conceive. He's more wonderful than my heart can believe. He goes beyond my highest hopes and fondest dreams. He's everything that my soul ever longed for, everything he's promised, and so much more. More than amazing, more than marvelous, more than miraculous could ever be. He's more than wonderful. That's what Jesus is to me. See, if Jesus is all of that, then being in his presence will be all that as well. The psalmist wrote, You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Paul exclaimed, No eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has imagined what God has prepared 
for those who love him. I think it's going to be something like what C.S. Lewis wrote on the last page of The Last Battle, which is the last book of the Chronicles of Narnia. The children who are traveling home from school on a train feel a bump and suddenly find that they're back in Narnia with Aslan, the lion. He says to them, you, you do not yet look so happy as I mean you to be. Lucy answered, we're so afraid of being sent away, Aslan. And you've sent us back into our own world so often. No fear of that, said Aslan. Have you not guessed? Their hearts leapt and a wild hope rose within them. There was a real railway accident, said Aslan softly. Your father and mother and all of you are, as you used to call it in the Shadowlands, dead. The term is over. The holidays have begun. The dream is ended. This is the morning. And after he spoke, he, he no longer looked to them like a lion. But the things that began to happen after that were so great and beautiful that I cannot write them. And for us, this is the end of all the stories, and we can most truly say that they all lived happily ever after. But for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. Now, at last, they were beginning chapter one of the great story, which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. I can hardly wait. We believe in the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. The Apostles' Creed ends with one word, Amen, which means it's true. May it be so. We agree. As God has revealed his will, his purposes, his ways to us, amen. As the church glories in Christ, amen. As we believe, teach, and confess the ancient biblical faith once for all entrusted to the saints, the faith that the church will confess for all the years to come and throughout all eternity, amen. Amen and amen. It's appropriate then, I think, that on this day that we're concluding our study through the Apostles' Creed, that we participate together in communion. Communion ties it all together. In the early verses of 1 Corinthians 15, Paul wrote, I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. As often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. Did, did you? Catch that. Communion remembers. 
communion looks forward and proclaims. Our faith is anchored to two historical events. On one end, it's anchored to the cross and the empty tomb. And on the other, it's anchored to our confident hope in the promise of Christ's return. We believe in the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. We believe that the risen, glorified, and exalted Jesus Christ will come again to take us to the place he's been preparing for us. And so we will always be with the Lord. So go ahead and take that little wafer. This is the body of Christ, which is for you. Eat it in remembrance of him. When Jesus took the cup, this cup, he said, is the new covenant that God was making with us, ratified by the blood of Jesus. Drink it in remembrance of him and his one-time-for-all-time atoning sacrifice for all of our sin that made it possible for us to receive the gift of forgiveness of all our sins and of of everlasting life. Amen. Amen.